You're listening to Conversion Nations, the podcast that helps conversion optimizers overcome challenges they face with their experimentation programs. Brought to you by Effective Experiments, the workflow and project management software helping optimizers make experimentation a core part of their business. Scale up your testing program with a centralized solution and document all your research, ideas, experiments, and results in one place. Learn more and request your free trial by visiting EffectiveExperiments.com. And now, your host, Manuel DaCosta. Hi, this is Manuel DaCosta from Effective Experiments, welcoming you to another live episode of Conversion Nations, the CRO podcast where we basically talk quite a lot. So, yeah. Uh, and uh, joining me uh, this time, uh, we've got Val Kroll um, joining us again on Conversion Nations. Welcome, Val. Hi, thanks for having me again. It's good to have you. And we have our regular uh, podcast resident, Tim Stewart. Hello, how are we doing? And uh, a brand new guest this time around is Elise joining us. Elise, do you want to quickly introduce yourself? And Hi, welcome. sure. Um, I'm Elise. I'm a CRO consultant. Um, I've been doing CRO for about six years. Great. And uh, you actually um, suggested this topic. So can you give us a, a brief summary of the topic for this conversion nations? Sure. Um, so the idea came to me uh, about a year or two ago when I first went into contracting. And um, I kind of realized that CRO sits within so many different areas, so many different departments, um, that I really had to work on some soft skills uh, to try and make sure that my communication styles were suitable for different teams. Um, and it's something I've actually become quite passionate about is, is this term soft skills, which is a bit of a misdemeanor. I mean, I don't think there's anything soft about what we're going to be talking about today. Um, but yeah, it's everything from sort of communication, uh, integrity, um, listening to people. Uh, so that's kind of the topics that I think we're going to be covering today. Yeah. So what the topic we put out was the non CRO skills for CROs and immediately I thought okay these guys are going to think you know what other skills should CROs actually have <laughs> and so you mentioned the term soft skills so why don't you start with you know just giving us a brief rundown about it and then let's continue the discussion um, you know with Tim and Val after that. Sure. Um, so I think I think like I think the key things uh, you can kind of split it down into different sections um, but for me, the key things are to do with listening and communicating. I mean, there's lots of other things, but um, I think it's really important that you can listen to uh, your coworkers, but also your customers. Um, and then when you're communicating your results and when you're talking about your test ideas, um, it's about finding the right way to communicate that with the business. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's mainly about trying to really understand how to position your ideas, how to position your, your expertise in front of them. Val, what's your take on this? Yeah, hugely important because um, if you do all this work to get these tests together and all this QA and all these meetings with legal and review, like what we talk about on Conversion Nations quite frequently, that whole that process, that end-to-end, -end, it's, it's not a lightweight um, activity. It's actually costly to run tests, right? If at the end of that, you're getting to these meetings or these sessions where you're telling people what they should do about what we've just learned, and they're not, you know, they don't have ants in their pants trying to get out of the meeting to go take action on it, then like, 
kind of failed, right? Like maybe you're telling them way too much of the story and you're letting them know about all the steps that you took to get this test live and all the screenshots across all the different devices. And that's not the message that they came to hear. So there's a lot in crafting a narrative that your business partners need. I think that that's a huge component of it. And something that you touched on too, Elise, um, is about ingraining yourself into the business a little bit and making sure you're, you're talking the way that they are. Um, can you imagine coming into a meeting and only talking about conversions in general, and you're talking with a marketer that has very specific goals in mind, right? So, um, yeah, I think that there's a lot in figuring out the way you communicate. So it's basically about putting yourself in uh, the other person's shoes uh, and to try and understand them. Tim, your take? <clears throat> Yeah, I think uh, we call these soft skills, but actually some of the hardest things to do. Um, and this is, it's not so much a, uh, a non-CRO skill, because I think to do what we do in terms of conversion optimization, we have to balance quite a lot of the, the different levels. We've got to be creative, but we've also got to be problem solvers, we've got to be project managers, we've also got to be pretty exacting on the numbers side of things. Those are all very different plates to keep spinning in your head and so the the challenge is those also need to be different for every single part of the business you're interacting with what you speak to at board level will be different to what you speak to at it level will be different to what you speak to in the project management team or the design team um i think matching is the key thing there uh, kind of at least kind of mentioned listening i think yes you start with start with listening but i think what you're then doing is adapting how you're communicating depending on how you need to be uh, received and that that varies and i think that puts a lot of pressure on the person in that middle role and i know val's kind of campaign for this being a, its own independent role simply because it's not necessarily the same set skill set as you need to come up with test ideas or uh, a strategic plan for improving business outcomes it's it's a people thing and it, it probably sits happier with hr or possibly project managers who I think share a lot of the same pain in that the, their job is very much by the numbers, very much kind of risk mitigation, very hard, but their job only works if everybody who's been assigned a task does their task at the right time in the right way. And so you end up with an awful lot of horse training. You end up with like talking to people, persuading people, combination of stick and carrots. Um, it's a tricky balance. And I think the, the ability to sell what you need into each person sell each step is actually for me very reminiscent of what we have to do with with landing pages and micro conversions you get little wins like they came to the meeting yay that's actually a win they went away going oh okay we'll learn better for next time they went away with ants in their pants great we should try that but that ants in the pants technique we used for this particular segment might not have resonated with the ones with the same meeting we tried with the board members so this also this all starts to sound like very much a cro skill because we're having to optimize but internally and i think that we've covered this before i think turning that mirror internally seems to be one of the hardest things that we, we struggle to do as, as conversion optimizers we need to understand that, that that's some of this stuff won't work but we can improve it at least let me go back to the point where you know you said that you came you, you realized you needed this skill what was the defining moment where where you know you really uh, realized that this was something that needed to change in the way you interacted with stakeholders Did, was there a defining moment I wouldn't say there was a defining moment, but it's definitely something which has been honed over the last year or so. Um, I, when I was at university, 
I um, I studied with a guy who essentially had dyslexia and struggled to um, learn parts of his course through reading the materials. He absorbed most of the information through going to lectures um, and audibly. But it also meant that when he was writing his essays, he really struggled with, with the writing aspect. And the, we kind of worked out this system where personally, I, I absorb information best through reading and writing. So he would dictate to me and I would write down parts of his essay for him. And then he could go away and sort of shape them into something that suited what he was trying to say. And that was kind of like the first time when I realized that different people learn things differently. Um, and since, since I've been doing CRO and dealing with stakeholders and other, so many other team members, I've really realized that some people, um, some people appreciate those meetings and those face-to-face -face conversations. That's how they understand what, what CRO is and that's how they learn test results. Whereas some people um, just prefer a table of numbers and some people much prefer graphs. Um, and it really came to a head last year um, during one of my contracts where I realized that one of the stakeholders was a very visual learner. He had almost no imagination, um, which was quite difficult for my job because I had these hypotheses which I couldn't get him to comprehend. And the only way we could get, get around it was to actually draw out these wireframes and draw out the actual test idea, which is no good for the long run, but for the short term to try and get him to understand what test is and for him to be able to see tests running and then how they ended up whether they won or lost or inconclusive that actually really helped as a stepping stone but we had to go through that stage of understanding that actually this particular manager if we want to get him on board we need to indicate to him in a way that he understands that, that's a good point and so how would like if a, if a CRO is starting in an organization today how would they go about understanding these learning styles or these listening styles of, of the different people they interact with? What, what strategies would you, uh, would you suggest? Normally, I look for how people communicate to me first. Um, if they want to come and chat to me, then I make the assumption that they're an audible learner. Um, but then, like Tim said, you might have a meeting and some people leave with ants in their pants and they're really excited. And some people just haven't quite grasped the concept, in which case that's a really good way to understand that the way I presented that didn't make sense to them. So let's try presenting it in a different way. Yeah, you have to read the room because obviously, depending on the culture, some of them may act as though they've got ants in their pants up until the door closes behind them and then... <laughs> <laughs> not so you've got to be a bit careful on that it's interesting that uh well Elise said there about kind of uh two pieces that you talked about somebody is, is really obvious with somebody who's not neurotypical um kind of dyslexia autism or something like that it stands out a bit more but actually these communication styles are everybody's got them okay and kind of oh if somebody comes to speak to me that might not mean that Audible's their best learning style. It might mean that their personality type is more gregarious or they're more they're less introverted. Okay, um, you can pick up tells in terms of how they communicate in their written and their speaking. And it's really weird, but the particularly in English, it's tricky to do this across languages. But you'll find that people will <coughs> phrase things that kind of hint at what the way they process. So when people say, "Oh, I see what you're saying," tend to be more visual. I hear you tend to be audio and it's they're leaking what they're doing here is the technical term they're leaking these the signals so it's something which you can only really gather over time you can't walk up to somebody and say what's your what's your neurotypical learning style because they don't know <laughs> they literally don't know no, no one's thought about it before <laughs> no but but the, the, there are some kind of tells and things and you know i do this and surprisingly enough um i'll come on to the kind of the 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 
the non non typical style I've got. But the um, I A B test my emails to people, and you'll laugh at this, Manuel, because you only get you actually only get the winner of the variation, which is long emails. Long ones, <laughs> super long. <laughs> so ones. My preferred style is just here's all the information, pick it out yourself, because that's easiest for me to do. Mm-hmm. But some people literally don't see if they see the long email, they never seen line one, they never even read line one. And line one could have the answer. It could have been set up beautifully as a TLDR, but they just perceive a large block of text and go, no. So you have to explore that maybe that hands-on meeting worked great for eight out of the 10 of design guys, but two were not. Mm-hmm. and then it worked great for three out of the 10 of the, the board, but not for the rest. And you may find that actually your style of communication at a kind of a job role level has got mixes within that now we tend to find that people gravitate towards a job role that has got a communication style or a learning style that suits them so the classic kind of developers are geeky stereotype is partly deserved but you also get some non-geeky devs you get some super geeky ceos um so you can't make assumptions based on that so you kind of have to sound out your environment and the people you've got to work with because effectively what you're going to do is kind of you know play them and you're going to work with them communicating to each of them in the way that they need to be communicated to and motivating them in the way that will motivate them personally, not what their job role says, not what their job description says they ought to be motivated by. And that is why it's not a soft skill because that's really hard. It's hard Life skill. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are a few factors I want to I I address or, or like ask questions about on that front. What if the CRO is an introvert themselves? Right? That's one point. And the second is how do you how do you cater uh, for this in a remote engagement? Uh, we're talk- there's a lot of talk about remote work happening. You know, we're we're in, we're in March 2020 right now. COVID 19 is all over the place. So yeah, you know, how how do you factor in uh, those two scenarios? Uh, an introverted uh, optimizer themselves, and uh, if if it's a remote engagement. So I'll just say first, I actually think of personality type, not necessarily 100% correlated with communication style. There might be some commonalities there, but I wouldn't consider them always hand in hand, especially to your point, Tim, about how you find those anomalous, like, I I think you're going to be this type of communicator person, but you actually are, are different from the mold, whatever, but that's where there's benefit in presenting the information you want others to consume in multiple different formats. Don't always assume you're going to have that presentation to get those cues. One of the things you said, Tim, is read the room, which is fantastic when you have that opportunity. But a lot of times, like one of your key stakeholders might not be able to join that meeting or they're like, well, can you just send me the deck if you had a presentation, right? So thinking about different formats. And that was um, one of the things I did when I was at the AMA is we always had a presentation whenever possible, but we also had our blog that allowed us to put it out in written format, which was a very different style of writing than what I would put in presentation slides. And um, so, yeah, we had like a mixed format and it was like, choose whichever one works best for you. And obviously that doesn't always work, especially if you're running at high velocity, but um, testing out different formats and letting people join what works for them, I think is a good one. But Manuel, if the point you're trying to make here is that the CRO doesn't necessarily want to have the face-to-face interactions all the time, that's fair too. But like, think about 
it's all of your team of one, it could be difficult, but think about building out the team that can complement your strengths with their strengths. And perhaps you find someone who really does love being the mouthpiece of your capability and loves like shouting from the rooftops and finding evangelists, whatever. So um, when you, when you make that second hire on your team um, or you're pulling someone else into the fold, try to find someone that complements you is, is one idea. Get yourself that cheerleader. That, if that's not you, if you don't want to do that, then find somebody who you can relate to on a one-to-one level because introverts aren't unable to talk to people. They just find that that wide open, anybody can ask me something really draining. Um, I tend towards that scale myself. <laughs> no, put a mask on. This is this is what I do. I This is what pays the mortgage and this is what I can allows me to do what I want to do. This is me solving for my problem but it's horribly draining and after a, a conference i'll spend three days and just not really talk to much people and, and read a book i recharge that's my coping mechanism if you can find somebody that you because don't find challenging to talk to and you can talk to them and enjoy yourself talking to, to to them and they get what you're doing and you can evangelize to them you've got a cheerleader let them go off and take the the, the front of stage and do that you can write the script get the applause, applause at the end of the night when they applaud the writer, but have somebody else present your play. And that's a mechanism as much as anything else. And it's a, it's a coping technique and a, that suits you. But one thing is clear is you can't just be, I'm an introvert, therefore we will not communicate this. Yeah. We will only do it in the way that I'm comfortable with because that's going to be suboptimal. You're not going to reach all the people you need to reach. You're not going to be able to coach the people to show them what they can do to help contribute towards this because it is a shared goal. The lone CRO needs to very quickly not be a lone CRO. You need to all care about doing this properly. Yeah. And that's the tricky part. And I think Val's, Val's you know, talking about getting an ops person. You need that person to own that change management piece. And it needs to be somebody who has got the skills that are required to do that. And some of those skills are not knowing your P-values from your Z-scores. They're they're just not not even on the agenda. Yeah, according to me, and I think we, sorry, uh, I just jumped. That's okay. Uh, um, You know, we talked about this in previous uh, episodes as well, where this needs to be a dedicated role on its own. Yes, the CRO has to have these soft skills, but like at the end of the day, when they're already managing a hundred different things, really you need a dedicated person for that and you know we've we've had terms for that like uh, the experimentation ops person i think val you you guys called it something else uh, internally as well so yeah definitely you need to have a, a complementary person but part of that is also recognizing in your own swot analysis where you might be weak and where you might need a complementary person that can help assist to take that forward uh, and rather than being, for want of a better word, egocentric and saying, yeah, I can do everything, right? So that's probably another key skill to have. It's like being being humble and being open to saying, actually, I don't know the answers to everything. Don't let Dunning-Kruger take over, which it probably <laughs> does. So, yeah. I was just going to draw a finer point on something that you mentioned, Tim, um, which is if you don't think as a CRO in your program, if you don't think change management is a part of your role, then you're doing it wrong. I can confidently say that. I usually don't make hard and fast rules like that, but that one I do. And I actually think, Tim, that that's why these soft skills are core to what the CRO needs to do, because we all know that that's a part of it. So again, if you don't think that's a part... Well, we, we, t- we talk on this. We talk on this. We talked on this in the myths episode recently, and it's kind of 
<coughs> big conversation in those kind of LinkedIn conversations people keep having is people talking about culture and it's kind of change management you're trying to effect to get to that point and quite often you're not in a situation where it was from the ground up built to be a testing experimental minded company you're you're an old business that's decided oops we best get on this and there are some fundamentals that need changing in how the business is structured who they've hired to do those roles how they handle those roles which is digital transformation change management it's going to be difficult there's some there's some medicine to take there and you need to sell that they won't just have that spoonful of bitter medicine you need a spoonful of sugar to help it down and that's where the art comes in i think this is what elise was talking about in terms of this needs to be considered because you have to you have to judge what's required for each person that you need within that overall piece and all of this is effort like i'm producing three versions of my final report to suit different communication styles of different stuff here's the right now with the gas question here's the time lag version here's the blog long form version and by the way here's the the short kind of exec summary version which is one slide once a quarter for the exec report for the board four versions of the same report and that's huge amounts of time that could have been spent on moving the program forward it's not, a cost, it's not a cost you can cut, but it's a cost that's not seen or is often kind of skipped over when people are planning this. And that's kind of the appeal this time out is to, to think these things through. It's not inconsiderable. I would argue, like Val, this is the main part of the job. Doing the colors and shapes and the numbers is the tool part. Interesting. I can hear a million uh, CROs kind of shouting out in privilege. <laughs> <laughs> Elise, I have a question for you, but I'll, I'll give you the backstory for why I'm asking it. So I actually used to be in market research before I was in digital analytics and, and optimization. And I don't want to paint a broad brush about like communication styles that are, you know, male versus female. But I will say that the market research world is very heavily female, like 80, 85 percent. And there's a very specific collaborative nature to that work. And when I was at the AMA and I was in market research and I switched to digital analytics, I picked up my communication style from there and dropped it into my new role, which was in IT, which let's just say when I say it didn't work, it didn't work hard. I was locked out of my Google Analytics accounts and GTM by the admins within one week. And actually, I was given this book anonymously <laughs> it showed up on my desk one day because i kept stopping by people's desks and being like hi i'm the new girl do you want to talk about how you can help me do my job and they were like oh my god you're ruining my flow like you're the worst so that was like a hard lesson so it actually made me look back to a lot of my old interactions that I thought were going fine until I had this like punch in the face. I was just curious, like when you kind of had this growth over the past year, did it make you look back on your previous five years in optimization space and think differently? Or was it always working for a certain reason until it didn't? I was just curious about your experience. There. Oh yeah, no. Um, I, there were totally times when I should have communicated in a different way, but I didn't realize it's, it's a learning process, right? I, some, something I didn't know five years ago, I didn't know it, but I know it now. So um, yeah, there were definitely times when, when I can kind of look back and go, well, I, I had, I had a bit of a, 
with a stakeholder had some issues and it's probably because the way I was trying to get my point across just didn't didn't he couldn't get it he could didn't understand it because my method of communicating it wasn't the same as, as his method um, it's funny you say that you went into IT um, I started out as a developer um, so most of my most of my emails are quite short sharp to the point here's the information you need similar to Tim but not not long just kind of like this is the information you need um, well, you're Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I've, sure. I've, been, I've been told I'm a bit European in my style because I kind of skip over the hey how are yous um, <laughs> it's definitely something I've had to um, adjust a little bit especially going into new jobs where I'm like wait no I need to build these relationships I need to even though that's not how I want to communicate it's how I have to communicate so that's what you do you adjust yeah definitely and in terms uh, you mentioned one thing as well um, in our previous conversations as well Tim sales skills right talk to me about why a cro should have sales skills and really how do they go about getting it yes yeah, so i i didn't come from a dev background i came from a sales and marketing background so persuading people that what you've got to sell is what they need and they should give you money for it right now was what paid the bills um <clears throat> so just like i'm drawing uh, parallels between kind of what we have to do in terms of selling a landing page, selling the next clicks and micro conversion. Uh, that for me is kind of part and parcel of what you have to do. Now, the stereotypical salesperson is poorly perceived because they're pushy. They sell you stuff you don't want to buy. They won't get, they won't ever stop phoning you. They keep doing kind of cheap tricks like dropping your name, dropping your name. Hey Val, hey Val. They call it the mental enema in sales training because if you hear your own name, it snaps you to attention. It takes you out of whatever reverie you're in. Um, but that's because you've only experienced, you, you don't notice a good salesperson. A bad salesperson stands out like the classic stereotype. A good salesperson does not because you don't realize they're selling to you. And then what they're doing is go there. They're finding out what you need. They're matching what they've got to offer to you to what they've got to sell. They can then confirm back to you going, is this, would this solve your problem? Would this get this done? And then they go for the close. If I can solve the problem that you've identified, would that be something you want? Yes. And what they're doing is very similar to what we do with micro conversions is that they're trying to create a chain of yeses. They're trying to get somebody to go a little yes. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. 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 Do you want to buy? Yeah, ah, you nearly got me there. But that's exactly what they're doing. They're programming the brain the same way we do that with sales pages. Um, so why do we need sales skills? Because we're going to try and persuade somebody who's not doing a CRO job. It's not in their job title. It's not what their OTE on target earnings are based on. It's not what their manager is judging them on the end of the week to spend time doing something that may distract from their targets, may take them actively away from their targets, may impact their career opportunities, may, as Val said, you know, break their flow. I've got to get this done. I can't have any more bugs. Oh, stop talking to me, crazy woman. <laughs> I like how you just added that. <laughs> I'm following on with her story. I'm not, I'm not, day after International Women's Day, I'm certainly not having a go at Val. Um, but... <clears throat> These are all kind of blocks to the sale. These are objections that you have got to uncover. And so objection handling in sales is they're going, because when you go for the close and they go, no, I don't want to buy. Why is that? Because obviously I identified this is your problem. We've identified, we've agreed this would solve it. And we've agreed that the price fits, etc. So why would you not go? And they've given you another objection. And you're basically trying to knock down these false objections. So we started off by saying empathy. You need to understand that they've got their life they've they're, they're already working hard their boss may be picking on them already uh, they're 
they may not have the tool for the job, they may not have the time for this, they may have a budget they've got to hit, and they may have time. You have to live in there, walk a mile in their shoes, and kind of go, yeah, what I'm offering doesn't solve their problem. I know to you it does, because you need them to do this, because you've got your problem, but actually that's you as the middle person, you need to kind of go, ah, me asking this stops them getting what they need. That's a very, very hard sales pitch to do. Please go against your own interests. You can sell that, but you're not going to do very well with that. It's going to have a low hit rate and people aren't going to be there for next time. They're going to avoid you. Likewise, you still need this to happen. So you need to look at going, well, if I can't have what I want, what could I get? And you end up kind of negotiating. Again, a sales technique. And it may not be as much as, hey, they've bought the idea they're going to give me a day of their time this week to do X, Y, Z. But actually, we're talking about micro-conversions here. We're talking about the can I have five minutes of your time. Not now, but I can talk to you at lunchtime. Fine. I don't want to break your flow. Great. Tick. I've paid attention. But I do need to catch up with you. You're much more likely to get that five-minute quick chat over a bagel at lunchtime, which will give you a steer on whether what you're trying to ask is possible at all than you are if you just demand five minutes right now on your terms that you're on your timing, which breaks their flow and makes them less likely to work with you. Now, you could say that's just being empathetic. You could say that's being salesy, but you've got to understand the product you're selling. I need your time for X may not be something your, your colleagues want to buy from you right now, or they may want to buy it, but they don't have the funds to buy it. The funds in this case being time. So you have to think of it like a sales transaction and it sounds mechanical, but if you're looking at this fundamentally, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to do user behavior changes. So you have to look at it as a transactional thing saying, if I do X, you will get Y. Does that suit both of us? And if it doesn't, somebody needs to fix that equation right now that sits with the CRO because we are across all the teams and we have to therefore be aware of this and negotiate for a living and I think it's very hard because if you're an introvert or you like your numbers that's the opposite end of the personality scale you have to become something that's very much not you and be good at it so good that it doesn't look like you're being a salesman because if you try this and fail you're pushy sales guy and that's not going to work at all it's really interesting that you phrase it like that Tim because when Manuel first reached out and was talking about like what this this episode was going to be about I was thinking about what soft skills do I feel like make the biggest impact on my career and I put down some notes around um, understanding other people's motivations like coming to a meeting and understanding that everyone has a different agenda besides you that no two people's agendas are the same but I never thought about that as a sales skill but I, I agree with everything you were just saying but it's, 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 it's it, it made me feel better to not use the word sales but, <laughs> yeah, but i came from sales, so just just for those who never done sales training this is sales training 101 but this is it it's like a good salesperson does exactly the same thing as a good colleague does a bad salesperson which is what we all associate doesn't or tries and fails which looks horrible but we're used to seeing the pushy ones because if you do it well you can't tell it's just humans being human that's actually what good sales is is i've got a solution you don't know you need it yet, but I'm going to make sure you get it. Let's see how we can make that work. That's yeah. it's not just what we just spent the first half of this talking about is ultimately you're doing that. And if you're trying to treat it like a sales thing, the other thing I think it helps with is it removes for me that feeling of failure because in sales, you fail all the time. You, you pitch, you close, you pitch, you close, you pitch, you close. They bought the, 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 the model for sales is typically offer something. If they turn it down, find out why offer something else. Does this not sound an awful lot like iterative testing? 
Okay. Well, let's find an MVP way to get that out the door in a shorter period of time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so cutting to the chase of what would really get this person motivated. Here's all the money in the world you could tie tomorrow. I'm doing it. You know, yeah. but you haven't got that to offer. So let's look kind of want, intent, need on your negotiation scale. Where do you where do you kind of fit with what you've got? And as the CRO, you often have a very small pocketbook. We haven't got much money to spend. We're asking for a lot from people, and so you need to use things. And it may be. Donuts, empathy, listening to them bitch about their childhood sweetheart who's not cool. I bought this guy donuts. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say it yeah. worked. <laughs> donuts, Star Trek memorabilia. That, you, know, you can play all the stereotypes you like, but they're tickets to the football game for the sales guys. That, that you can play all the jock stereotypes, all the geek stereotypes you want, but ultimately our focus is in making the business move better. Use yeah. the people, go forward. They've already got all the assets in place to make this work better. So... I think one of the ways that I've, um, I did, I did a little bit of what you're talking about here in the past is we had, when I was at AMA, we had six different business units that we were supporting and I had a team of two. And so we divided it up uh, amongst the accounts we supported and we understood what product or what, um, what asset, what the goals of that asset was. And that's how we built out the goals in the hypothesis library and everything like that. And we thought like, okay, we're talking their language that this should be enough. Like we're, we're optimizing for their goals, but we realized that the leads of each of those products were actually uh, rewarded by their bosses slightly differently than like the goal of the product itself. And so we humanized it a little bit to try to figure out how do we make the tests motivate and help support the goals of the people, not necessarily the product. And a lot of times there was a lot of similarities, but it wasn't just about um, a certain number of downloads, as an example. It was about like the the number of um, touch points with end users or something like that. Like there was nuance to the way that we were um, creating the goals for each of the tests, and that we got a ton of buy-in from that switch alone. But yeah, if you can, right in line with what you're saying. Your, your business, business KPIs and your human KPIs are not necessarily the same, yeah. and I think if and if you pay attention to both, you'll do better. I'm very conscious we're, we're chatting because Val and I have chatted about this previously and Elise is kind of the one who brought the subject to the table so yeah sorry Elise. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting that um so Tim you've mentioned empathy and Val you were talking about motivations and um I, I find that a really interesting way to talk about um essentially how I've managed to get different teams on board with testing, especially in companies where they're quite new to the idea. And a lot of the time it's about having conversations with these different teams, finding out what they're trying to accomplish and then doing your damned best to try and get them to accomplish that. And it can be tricky when you're trying to support like numerous teams. I've worked in some quite big businesses where you're supporting so many different goals and KPIs. But even if you're just doing one test in a roadmap to try and support that team, then you're kind of showing some empathy and you're saying, look, I really want to help you but I've only got limited bandwidth to, to help you with this particular product. Actually, my focus is need to be somewhere else. But if you're still doing something and talking to them and understanding their motivations, I think that's like a massive step to get to this whole idea of a culture of experimentation, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and, and uh, to follow on from that as well, a good way to, to highlight those opportunities is when you are doing your roll-up meetings where you kind of go, here's what we've done so far, just give credit out like it's confetti, like Oprah. Yeah. You get some credit. You get some credit. So, <laughs> so when, when you're doing this whole, here we got a, here we got a test running and we got this result and it kind of it's dry. No, you go and the idea for this came from John and accounts, and John and accounts wanted to fix this problem for the business. So flag up that John's got the the, the nous to spot that it's a business problem. 
we helped him kind of phrase how we could do that. That prompted us to come up with these ideas, which they gave the design guy something to do, thanks to Susan in, in, in design, because she came up with the solution for it. So your result here is actually John and Susan's test. So give give everybody credit except yourself. We just facilitated it. You know, like that's the easy part. But you know what? They'll value John and Susan's opinion more next time. John and Susan will certainly not be scared of sharing with you next time. Mm -hmm. and, and the other teams will start going, hang on, that doesn't sound like a test. That sounds like they had a problem. They had their KPI they were missing and they had a chat and they told them the KPI. You won't become the business agony ant for the business. But if you're talking about the best way to get test ideas that suit the business, that match matter to business KPIs, being the business agony ant for I've got this problem right now is a fantastic way to source ideas. It may not give you the tests because some of those may not be soluble through tests, but we talked about this last time. It's not about A-B testing. It's experimental mentality going, well, this won't solve it, but maybe you could speak to your email people. I'll help you structure it so you could report that well, but this isn't an A-B test per se. This is kind of looking at how your drip campaign reports in Marketo. Oh, but that will still solve your problem. So that's still good. And I think you can actually spread around that knowledge whilst you're solving problems. And then, yeah, I think giving people that kind of leg up to say these ideas, these get things better stuff existed around the business. And it's to a degree showing what's already there. Um, Cause this works happening. There are people sat there frustrated going, I wish this could be better. I've got this idea of how to be better. You want to get the buy-in. That's actually what your communication stuff, what your soft skills are trying to uncover. And yeah. so when they are uncovered, show them off. This is this is John's idea. It's Susan's idea. That's a yeah. great piece of advice. That's a great. Yeah, getting getting buy-in is is just about getting their trust first of all, for yeah. them to be open enough to share with you, and uh, then only before you spend it. But, but yeah, and genuinely so. Like, don't do it for like quid pro quo, for no. the sake of it. But but if you are giving in that way it will just rain in with ideas and support because of the same thing. Like I, you solve my problem. I owe you one. That's how business works. It shouldn't, but humans are running this show. So actually that's exactly how it works. So start by giving the law of reciprocity by Robert. Sheldon. Exactly. I was trying um, to not say that because I've got a bit of a frog in my throat and I didn't fill up my juice. So long know. words like that. <laughs> <laughs> So Elise, what are some of your tips for selling? And you were saying that you had like a lot of paths, like hard to sell into different teams. What are some of your pro tips? Oh, I mean, off the top of my head, it's essentially what we've already talked about, um, which is, is taking other people's ideas, giving them the credit, um, listening to their ideas. And quite often someone might come to you with an idea, which isn't quite right like maybe they don't have the the knowledge of testing and how it works or they have a problem in a half-hearted solution which can't be tested but to at least have that conversation with them and to listen to the problem you can normally bash out some kind of idea a fake door test or something um which makes them feel like they're valued um and that you have listened and that you are taking it on board um and then to manage their expectations um as a follow-up to say look you know go away and do some research or i've gone away and done some research um and this is what i think we should do next however you know the prioritization sits with other teams or other departments so we're not going to do this just yet but like, at least make them feel like they've been heard you know um, and again, the different communication styles um, and trying to adapt. Uh, I, for me, that's, that's what's made the biggest impact um, is just understanding that people learn in different ways. Um, 
yeah those, those are my pro tips is, is listen to people and, and talk to them in ways that they understand one of the things that um, when I ran a, a coaching group a year and a half ago um, got them to go and uh, talk to everyone in their organization so first firstly really work out a, a, an organizational map uh, try and figure out who are the different people that are going to either be an ally or an obstruction for want of better word and then just take them out to coffee and without any agenda just start building personal connections with them because you know people always kind of expect you to have an agenda when you have a meeting with them but if it's yeah. coffee hey let's just grab coffee let's try and learn about you on a one-to-one -one basis i think stuff like that doesn't actually move your kpis in in the traditional sense you're not building tests but you're building those relationships which as tim said you know you can bank on later on and yeah, you it's, it's increasing it's increasing the wheel i think if you, yeah. if you if you do that with a kind of a ulterior motive in mind that's a little bit more uh, disingenuous but if you kind of say look I'm, we're gonna have to work together i'm looking to try and help you Tell me, tell me what you know, makes you you know, makes you as Val's point. What, what gives you ants in your pants? What gives you kind of the heebie-jeebies? What scares you? What are the biggest pressures right now? How can what? How do I get out of the way of those? Yeah. And really, before you know, it's that's really one. Um, sorry, sorry. Um, because Manuel, you you used the word trust earlier, and I think trust is key. I think it's so important. Um, I'm actually reading Radical Candor at the moment. Um, yeah, <laughs> Val's Val's clapping, okay. <laughs> and um, it's all about um, it's all about essentially being honest uh, with people, but also actually caring, um, like genuinely caring, not not surface level. And I think this comes back to Manuel what you were saying about um, taking people out for coffee, but it's genuinely just a coffee. Just just yep. to understand them and and what their lives are like and, and to ask after their kids or whatever um which kind of goes against a little bit my email policy of not asking people how they are but when i care about people i am genuinely interested and when i ask it means i genuinely care um and i hope that that comes across with the people that i deal with when i work and if you're a more um cynical manipulative type actually having that amount of information on people means you know who can be relied on who can't be so when you're planning your strategy and your tactic either way so, it works either way it works so i just want to make sure I, I properly care about are you going to be in on monday because actually i've got to get a job done and it sounds like sneaking but, but actually it's getting the lay of the land it's just the same as kind of can this vendor and this tool set do the thing I need to do for this test? Can the people I've given the job to do the job? And I don't just mean does their job title have, I mean, do, have they got the JavaScript capability to do that in the turnaround time we've got? If not, I need to plan around that. It's no, no offense to that person. It's no target on their back. It's a knowledge base. If they're having a bad time because they just broke up from their relationship, you need to factor that in because your overall picture is actually going to be factored down to if they are working like crazy because they've got no home life to go back to or if they are not that focused when they're working happen. and that's why they're doing the double the hours because they're just not in their own head anymore and like, be human if that's where they're at put them on a job that allows them to bounce back from that but you've got to plan around it um whether you want to be kind of touchy-feely and huggy which is a risk of kind of like take people out of coffee with no agenda or whether you kind of go even if you are more manipulative, still do that because it's useful. Sam, <laughs> this is not, I don't know if I agree with that, encouraging manipulators. I'm, but no, I think I'm, but the, the, the same point is, is I'm not saying the manipulators go out with an agenda in mind, is they still need this information. <laughs> I'm saying they can't skip this legwork and assume. 
Jim's eyes are rolling him up now. Right? Hey, Jim. <laughs> and I think when I when I started at um, UBS, that was the largest company I had ever worked for, 66,000 people. Um, and that is where I really realized the power of your internal network and building those relationships. Because a lot of times in CRO, a lot of things are true where the process doesn't exist before you're there. Like there's a very clear process for um, application development teams to release, but maybe not for your test. And so there's a lot of people who need you need help from to like weigh in on to like move things forward. And a, a really great way to get your experimentation program, again, that change management piece off the ground is to not make experimentation seem like something extra on top of your responsibilities, but rather a part of what's already happening. What better way than to build relationships with people so now you're invited to those conversations and hallway chats that no one would ever put on your calendar that it's like, hey, you know, we're just trying to figure out like, how do we move forward with this new feature that we have to add in this roadmap? Like, where should this go? And then now you're a part of that conversation and it becomes ingrained with that release, you know? So I think that that's really great advice to you, Manuel. And I've, I've had a lot of positive experience with, with that as well. That's really good. Talking about empathy, right, being key, there's one, there's one um, interesting observation that I want to bring up. And I've seen this uh, like a few times where people go on about, oh, the hippo, and then there's cue laughter, or the hippo has done something silly, cue laughter. And I feel like we should really stop that as CROs, because what that kind of does, and, and if we're talking about empathy, it kind of puts us in the bucket where we feel superior than the other people in the organization. So the hippo or the, you know, the, the dev team or whoever else is them, the other person in this organization. And what you really want to avoid is an us versus them scenario, because if you're, if you're trying to encourage this culture of experimentation, then really what you want to avoid is that. But I've seen quite a few comments like this. I mean, we've, I've written an article about that myself, about the hippo, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a CRO thing. I'm sure in other marketing sectors, something similar exists. But I feel like we need to get past this, where we need to stop looking down on these other teams as like, oh, these guys don't know what they're talking about. We know everything. And I feel if we can, you know, we talk about putting uh, ourselves in other people's shoes. If we can start doing that better, I feel we might have much more of an impact. I think it's got a really, a really serious sort of thing. We're all like, step, we're like, step we're like, down yeah, from the <laughs> Well, that even came up actually. Um, I know, Manuel, you have some mixed emotions about the phrase culture of experimentation, but the HBR article that everyone's been talking about, that was something that came up um, in there that like, even though there's a lot of things that can be tested or experimented on to a certain extent, there's still a lot of really big and important business decisions that that C-suite has to make, such as should we acquire or merge with another company? We can't really test that, right? So you still are putting those people in those positions because you trust their decision-making ability. And even though we want to put power in the hands of the data, that there still is a reason that that person is there and there's still a lot of really important decisions that they have to make in the absence of a, a nice little AB split. So it, it's a fair point. It's a fair point. Yeah. Although I, I have really capitalized on that dynamic in the past. I am 100% guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all are. I think we all are. I mean, in, in, in Slack groups, on LinkedIn, on, uh, you know, conferences, there's this little clique, right? Where the CRO clique, where we, we sit around and we just uh, moan about the hippo because, oh, they're not, they don't know what they're doing. 
But I just feel like it inadvertently makes us come across as much more superior than everyone else. And just that kind of mentality then puts us in this position where we don't feel that empathy for that other person because they just don't get it. Why should we care, right? But if we start thinking of it differently, like, as you said, these people might have different things going on in their lives. And as C-suite, they may be having to make decisions that are independent of these A-B tests altogether. Um, yeah, they've got, I mean, they've, they've got hire and fire responsibility, P&L. Um, they're, they're not being top line and just give me the numbers because they're that way programmed although it does tend to attract the person who likes that just give me the bullet points mentality because that tends to be what it is it's because they have got so many other things they need to factor into they need to kind of go can i trust the data you just given me i just need the one number because i've got 17 other numbers to go get and if any one of these is wrong i'm going to be multiplying them together and that will exponentially make the error go out but equally if you then come back later going oh sorry it was half that that's completely knackers everything else i've then got to do in terms of who i'm going to buy next month who i'm going to sack next month what we how much we commit into to our um our foreignty um hedging or whatever these factors which will fundamentally affect how much you can spend on tools how many people you've got working alongside you next month next year have to happen and we talk about highest paid person's opinion but it's obviously it's the highest paid person in the room so that may actually only be the same level as you or slightly up slight seniority it's, it, it makes for this. I think you, you're wishing on this one, Manuel, is a little bit tricky because them and us is a human thing. Yeah. Know, we're, a, we're a tribal ape. That's how we work. It's kind of <clears throat> what you need to do is create your 55 to 155 squad that is a current version of us versus them that is doing the job that is good enough to actually help them. And that, that's, that's the mindset is you, you would only get, you can only process in terms of that. And, and you kind of need a bad guy. You kind of need a, an other to give yourself some comparison. And the, the human psyche needs that in terms of doing that. So you're going to have a degree of, we need a scapegoat. Uh, and, and the risk, we, everything we've talked about at the moment is if you get this wrong, the CRO becomes that scapegoat. The person in the middle becomes the one that everybody gets to blame. They all get to point up saying, I would have done my job except so-and-so interfered. And the other factor to that is what Val was saying, those little serendipitous little conversations, the little pop in, kind of pop by your desk, can I just ask you a question? You can't calendar those. You can't put them in your OTE, you can't put them in your KPI stuff going, this week I had 15 serendipitous conversations which led to things which may pay off in six, six months' time. Your personal ROI, your departmental ROI is knackered because the thing that provides the most value to actually doing the job and growing the program, not measurable at all. Yeah. And you can't make it measurable without making it false. So you end up with a situation where you need to hide the stuff that you need to do in amongst doing the stuff you need to do, the stuff you're officially allowed to do. I need to arrange a meeting with design. Kind of is an excuse to have a chat with design in the corridor before the official meeting <laughs> because you can log one meeting, but the actual conversations outside is where the business happens. And that's the tricky part of the CRO being in the middle is that if we are the glue between all of this, and that is really what we're saying is the optimization program's job to do. You're easy to blame for all of this. You become the equivalent of the hippo. Uh, not my fault, CRO told us to do it. And you're easy to get lost in the value you add there because the maven piece, the person who helps those interactions, who eases and, and improves those interactions, the catalyst to this 
it looks very easy to take that catalyst out. It's all working really well. We'll just take this expensive bit out. And actually, without that, the engine doesn't fire. It still runs. It just doesn't run as efficiently. And it's very hard to put your finger on where because the tacit knowledge that you were using to make it happen is tacit. It's not obvious. It's not documentable. It's that little bit of, I know that he works this way and she works that way and we pulled this string. That's the value, but it's hard to measure. That reminds me of uh, some piece of advice that I heard from Tim Wilson on a recent digital analytics power hour episode. They did an analytics tips one and Tim's advice was don't be an asshole. <laughs> and he elaborated to say like, just remember that we're in a service industry that like we need to uh, work with those marketers, work with those product people to launch those tests. Like we can't operate in a silo without those other people. So if we don't respect their opinions and empathize. Like we've been talking about that, you know, we're not going to get anywhere by like publicly flaming and shaming people, even if it is, is the hippo. Cause it, it is a lot about those relationships. So. I like that one the most. Yeah, it's interesting though, because I think sometimes the empathy comes from um, comes from blaming a hippo. Um, I completely agree. It's it's not right. We should have empathy for everyone, but I I generally agree with Tim in the sense that sometimes you need a scapegoat, and if you're trying to build a relationship with with someone who's at the same level or not a hippo, and the best way to build that relationship is to show yeah. empathy with them by yeah, you need a shared enemy. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah then some, sometimes that's something you have to do. I mean, I, outside of work, I will never turn around and say this person was terrible um, because I think it's unprofessional and I'm not into burning bridges. Um, but inside of work, if I'm, if I'm trying to build that relationship and I am having troubles, then sure, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I'm going to use someone else as my agony aunt or they can use me. Um, that's about building healthy relationships at work. So I agree with that. I, I guess the only language I don't agree with is the scapegoat because showing like these decisions used to be made long before CRO was a function, right? Like we did release things. Our websites did make changes long before we were here, right? So where did those decisions fall? Well, typically people in those high positions, whether it was C-suite or lower, they were the ones who were asked to make the final calls in some of those decisions. And so we're basically taking some of that power away, essentially, by putting it in the hands of the data. We're the facilitators. Like, I love that language that you used earlier, Tim. Um, so they're not a scapegoat as much as it's like helping the organization get comfortable with like the power being placed in a different um, area of the organization. So it's not like they're the enemy or like they're going to help, you know, the, if, if you weren't around, all the decisions would be terrible, but it's, it's, it's posturing, I guess, is more what I think. Like I can show that we're sitting side by side because we both want to take the power away from this one person and put it in the hands of the data. But I don't, I don't think of it as a scapegoat, I guess. Yeah, uh, maybe it's, it's, I, my, my, my thing with a cautionary note is more that if, if, if given a chance, if everything's gone wrong, they'll just point at you. Because if you've had your finger in every pie, it's really easy for you to then get the blame for it. Yeah. So, so they will sit around, they'll have a brainstorming meeting, the opposite the brainstorming, and, and they will kind of go, who can we pin this on? <laughs> and if yeah. you're the most visible part of that, don't care how good you've been, blame will get pinned on you. Now, the defense to that is, hey, you know those relationships and those conversations and those people you helped out? If, if they're turning around and saying, that bit in the middle, that facilitation is not worth it, and we've had a mistake, and we've got a problem, and you're involved in all of it, so therefore it must be your fault. The people who you have helped out, you've empowered, will be the ones who stand up and defend you. 
so actually you end up with you end up with the team kind of going no no exactly what you said val we're all working on this together we're going to have missteps it's not his or her fault sat in the middle as a facilitator so the best defense you've got against being a big target on your back is to actually have everybody stand up and say i'm spartacus and if you've worked it properly (laughs) actually they will because they see you as without that guy i wouldn't have had that problem solved or without this girl she this wouldn't have happened right they're thinking of themselves selfishly for next summer going god if i've got a target here next summer and i don't have that person on my team anymore i don't want to play the game so hard so actually they're still acting in self-interest but you've made it so that you being part of their team is self-interest for them and that's yeah. kind of your encouragement to do well and make sure they get what they want because they're there to defend you if, if you don't i mean i know politics is in business is way less pretty and neater than that but if you're saying about building out your team building out your little internal network that's what they're there for too you're each other's safety net i hear that i guess the only two things that i consider negative that i could do as a cro is if i did something where i like took down the website (laughs) and it was like a failure qa which um i think we've all done to a certain extent or i've accidentally misreported data like if i made some mistake in my analysis because my credibility is so important as an analyst right if i'm someone who's representing data to someone who didn't dig into it themselves, I'm comfortable with all their scenarios. I'm fine with tests failing. I'm fine with the big idea falling flat. Like I can explain that because I can help people understand what we learn from each of those things. The only two things that I feel like I have a target on my back for is when I've taken down the corporate website or, you know, I have to put my tail between my legs and say, actually, (laughs) that wasn't as high as I said, you know, so those are the only two things that I think are negative. Are there other scenarios, Tim, that you're thinking about when you're talking about this dynamic oh yeah again i'd say about more about the corporate politics side of things if you're talking about this team and multiple teams no matter how well you do this no matter how well intentioned you've done um there's gonna be somebody who doesn't want you to have that power doesn't want to take some power off and give it to data they had their own ambitious plans you end up with somebody who will be actively undermining you because it's in their best interest they believe to undermine them for their personal gains even if you're magnanimously trying to do it for the business gains because actually those two things account diametrically opposed so you need to be careful is what i'm saying it's 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 a high profile job and that has both pros and cons and if it's not a high profile job like you said start you're doing it wrong there's a change management piece and and part of change management is somebody needs to own it somebody needs to be a face for that you need to sell them that glorious glass castle on the hill that will be their future and then persuade them grudgingly to cut each hard one step on the mountain on the way to get there because you have to keep selling them the dream at the top of the mountain and also ensuring the next step follows and and that's very easy like the project manager to be your good project manager always chasing me to get so-and-so done trying to track my time it's just it's not my proper job yeah but without that it doesn't actually happen nobody gets paid we all go home so it's there are certain roles within this like management like cro where it's easy to become the hated one because you're the person saying you didn't do your homework and you need to be better and they may not be said in those words but that's what somebody will hear if it's against their agenda you know you missed a trick oh, be, so, so there's, if there's, someone treats you as the hated one, we should reach out to Elise. What's your email address exactly? Elise at overcoming. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's, there's a degree of that. Not everybody's working to the same agenda. 
and yeah. uh, just be aware of that because the optimal outcome is what we're discussing and the best way to play it is what we all know and it's not as easy as that but we're chatting about it but there'll be somebody who for whom the not optimal outcome is what they want which yeah. you are playing against in this bigger game and, and <clears throat> that seems like odd to us. Like we always want to be better. So like going for, yes, but if it's not as big, then my department's more important than the other one. It's not something we should have to factor in, but it is something that happens every day. Yeah. Cool. Let's see if uh, anyone attending, a few people attending, have any questions. Uh, otherwise we can kind of start wrapping up. So Ben or Jeff, any, any of you guys have any questions, drop it in the chat box right now uh, because we can address that. If not, we can start wrapping up the show. Any uh, final thoughts, guys? Oh, uh, oh, that's bad. That was me. That's, that's Val asking for questions. <laughs> <laughs> do, uh, do you have any, any uh, final thoughts to add to this, Val? Or Elise? Elise, maybe you can start. Um... I mean, I think it's really interesting the conversation we've just been having around um, sort of stakeholders and not wanting to step on people's toes. Um, I think it's natural with CRO, you're going to be stepping on a lot of toes. Um, that's part of the job. Um, and you just got to try and take it in your stride. Um, I think at the very beginning, we mentioned about when you're starting in a new role and you're learning who's on your side and who's not. Um, and I think it's, it's good to get the people who are already on your side even more on your side and then start working on, on the people who might be a bit trickier um, using all the techniques we've discussed. Um, but like Tim has said, it's, it, it's not an easy thing to do at all. Um, it takes persistence and it takes practice, um, but don't, don't give up. Yeah, I agree with that part about uh, it's not going to happen overnight uh, and you will do do it for like weeks and you will not see any kind of like tangible return on, on this, but it's just about doing it and doing it with a long-term goal in mind. And something like change management, again, if, if that's the key um, outcome, that's, yeah, that's also not an overnight thing. Uh, so this ties in quite well. So yeah, um, Val, any final points? Yeah, I, I would just say, um, make sure you really ingrain yourself in the business that you're supporting. Like if you're coming into a new job or a new role or a new team and you're like, oh, you're lead gen. So it's all about forms, right? Like take the time to understand and appreciate the nuances of that business, because the more you're talking similar to the people that you're supporting, the more buy-in you're going to get, the better your ideas are going to be. There's a better chance that they're going to hit, right? So um, make sure you take the time to do your homework and really understand the business that you're supporting. Um, and this, I learned lots on, on this call. I thought this was such a great conversation. So um, thank you again for asking me part of this. And thanks for Tim and Elise for all of your wonderful advice and Manuel. So, uh, Tim, any final thoughts uh, with uh, within ten seconds, please? <laughs> yeah, don't, don't pick on the person who talks a lot. When we talk about picking on the hippo, there you go. It's my final thought. Um, no, I think the, the, the Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll pause you. I'll pause you there. Sorry, I'm going to pause you there. There's a question coming. So, oh. uh, so okay. um, Ben says, "I've been in a situation where I was answering to someone who fancied themselves as data-driven and knowledgeable on these processes, but honestly, they were not. How do you sell better ideas in a sensitive situation? So, full-on Dunning-Kruger with that guy or that person, you know, like." They they thought themselves at the bee's knees, and you know Ben says they weren't. So how how would you approach that? Yeah, data informed, not data driven. Um, yeah, I mean, it, let's let's try and use it as a way to sum up. So Elise said to kind of tread carefully. Yeah, if you're going to step on toes, wear slippers. 
Like, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> if, if it, it's going to happen, you're going to have to put a nose out of joint. You're going to have to, so, but there are ways to do that. So we talk about our sales stuff. How much do they know they're in this? So there's a couple of approaches. There's the kind of the more alpha male mic drop way, which is get better data them and show them up in public. Very effective. Won't make you many friends, but very effective. No. Then you've got the kind of more kind of gentle stuff going, well, that's interesting. And then get effectively Talk me through how you came to that data. Because, like, you say you're data-driven. Questions. Asking questions. Show me the data. I'm data. I'm data-driven. Get them to stick. Literally, let them hang themselves with their own petard on the data side of things. So if they think they're knowledgeable about the process, talk through. If you're supposed to be collaborating, you know, saying, in this case, they honestly were not. If they're working, if they honestly were not, they'll show themselves up really quickly. And then at that point, it's your chance to catch them and say, don't worry, I got you, bruv. I can, I can help out. Oh, I see you missed a trick there. The way you could have handled this is this. Well, should we work on this to work together next time? Don't make them feel stupid. Show them, oh, I've made that mistake before myself. So it's actually a good teaching opportunity as long as it's handled well. So you could do it confrontationally, and sometimes it's best to just knock those guys out of the park and make them look really foolish. But that's quite the baller move, and you need to know you've got a game plan if you don't win. But the more kind of empathetic and possibly if you're working with a team that ain't going to change, get them to talk through the data. Say, look, I'm glad that you've got this. So if we're going, like, how do you sell better ideas up? There won't be just complete nonsense in there. If there, if, if there is, you'll spot it from orbit. It's going to be something where there's a gap that's been missed. There's going to be something where an interpretation maybe hasn't been as exacting as it could have been. They've saw, They've seen the answer they wanted and they've, mangled the data to make it answer that so a couple of a couple of little questions to say interesting and how would you back that up or what happens if okay question i think to add to that okay so a few a uh, week ago uh, i put on linkedin this guy we're having a conversation he's in a, in a he's a cro specialist in a team where the cro manager is basically you know, presenting results to the stakeholders and saying, yeah, look at all these amazing successful tests we've had, basically calling tests when they hit like 100 conversions or something, right? Oh, yeah, I saw that. Thread. And I, 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 now I, where's <laughs> the power play there? Because you could, you could say that this guy could, you know, say I've got your back or, or whatever, but this guy's the manager now. You take him off to the side and say, I don't care, boss. I mean, if, if ultimately that, that job's not going to last long if that's what the boss is doing. If the person who looks after your department is, is basically setting your department up for a file, that job's gone. It, it's not, maybe not be gone now, but it's gone soon. So you go on Game of Thrones in this guy then. <laughs> yeah, d- depends where, how ambitious you are. But I personally would be more like take the boss on the side saying, boss, that's not how the force works. Like data integrity is critical to what we're doing here. If you're making promises that we can't, without when this goes live, follow up on. If we are telling people, as Val said earlier, my credibility is shot. If credibility is shot, we don't get any favors. We don't get any freeway. If we make a mistake, we get hung for it. Whilst I know we need to have results, we need to present those ways in a way that we can back up with the data we've got and if it is unclear we say this was unclear because that is a totally acceptable thing to say and if they go oh it's not acceptable we educate them as to why it's acceptable and what we're doing about it being more clear next time because that's what we actually do for a living not make up numbers and if they won't listen to that start looking for a new job because that department will close plus yeah definitely yeah that's going to catch up to them they're writing checks that you know the data can't back up that's that's such a short-term play 
I just can't. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's just like they're giving themselves all the rope to hang themselves with. And it, it, it will come back to, uh, you know, to haunt them at some point. But, but my, my concern was that, was that one, you've got a, someone with not much power, the specialist. Well, I say not much power, but, you know, he feels like he can't question this manager culturally <coughs> or whatever. And then you've got the stakeholders who can't really, who don't really know what's good or what's bad. And they're none the wiser. And well, so now we know how we can address that situation. And hopefully, Ben, we've answered your question as well. Uh, Tim, any final thoughts now? 10 seconds. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think the, the, main, the main point is, is this is not something you will solve overnight. This is not something where one set of canned tactics and responses will work every time for all people. I think if anything we've said is it is a per-person, long-winded, difficult approach to go through this, but it's not something you can skip. You're doing it already, even if you don't realize that you're doing this, because you are interacting with people and talking to people in a way that is influencing their behavior to you now and will in future. So with that knowledge, you need to shape the way you handle them because you judge your communication on how it's responded to, not on how you give it out. And if they do what you need them to, you've communicated what you needed well. If they don't do what you need to, that's in their best interest, then no matter what you were asking for, you didn't communicate that in a way that was going to be received in a way that got the result. And you're doing this, so do it better. And that really is what we say at the end of every conversionations is, is this is not new stuff, but doing it better and planning to use it for a particular direction is what gets results rather than just trying it all and seeing what sticks. Yep. That's more like a minute, but tough. I know I was going to say that was 10 seconds. <laughs> anyway, so I'll, uh, I'll say two seconds. <laughs> See, we communicate that way. But, uh, so if, if you are, um, First of all, thanks to the, uh, the people joining us on this call. Uh, if you want to check out any of our previous episodes, you can check them out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website, EffectiveExperiments.com. Uh, I want to thank the people who've joined me on this call. Uh, Val, thank you for joining us again. Absolutely. Um, Elise, thank you for joining us for the first time. Hopefully, uh, you can join us again in the, in the near future. Love to. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Tim, I'll see you on the next episode. Uh, well, assuming that you can make it worth my while after being so horribly rude to me and not <laughs> you've, been, you've been on about 20 odd episodes, so come on. I, think, <laughs> I know you're going to work on your sales skills. My pleasure. I enjoyed it as always. And I accept a bit of teasing <laughs> as the, the, the price I pay for being the way I am. Yeah. So th which thanks. You love Tim. Which you love. <laughs> thanks, Val. See, that's the way to do it, Manuel. Honestly, well, mine's tough, love. Mine's tough. <laughs> <laughs> I like Val's better. Oh, uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Uh, this has been an episode of Conversion Nations. My name is Manuel de Costa. Thanks for joining us. Uh, leave a comment on LinkedIn if you liked it, and maybe summarize your thoughts on there and share it with others. Uh, thanks again. See you on a future episode. Bye for now. You've been listening to Conversion Nations. Don't forget to subscribe to get notified when we release new updates. Conversion Nations is brought to you by Effective Experiments. Want to make experimentation a core part of your business? Request your demo and let us show you how we can help you grow your testing program.